Well, welcome to Freedom. It's always good to see you here. Uh, we've got a lot of folks who are watching online, and it's always good to have you tuned in that way. It really is, uh, especially in this season of pandemic, uh, it's a particular joy to have so many of you who are able to tune in in that way. A lot of our Baldwin County church family are tuned in online, and we're glad that you get to stay connected that way. But we've got extended church family that tune in on a regular basis, and I just want you to know how much we appreciate and value your connection in that way. Some of you we've never met before, and yet you are faithful to be a part of the Freedom family every week, and we say welcome to you. We've got friends of Freedom who are scattered in numerous different states and in several other countries, and we are so glad to have you tuned in. Uh, Mark and Sandy in Texas, who we watch uh, so regularly, friends uh, in Florida, who who watch regularly, friends in uh, Michigan and California, who tune in every week. We're glad to have you. I just was, uh, by mail, introduced to some new friends of Freedom, who sent a little note this week. Um, It's Don and Sarah Foley from Cleveland, Tennessee, sent a little note with an offering that said, Dear Pastor Mark, uh, during the pandemic and associated stay-at-home time, we have adopted Freedom as our church. Enclosed is our initial investment in the required roof repairs reference in the January 10th service. We appreciate you and send this with love to you and to all of our fellow Christians. Thank you for that. That's, it's just cool to hear from, uh, from friends who have just found us online. To, to uh, uh, Jim and Dave and Nick and all of you who work the booth every week, that is just a testimony to the fact that it matters that you guys do what you do, and we're able to broadcast that. So thank you guys for tuning in and being a part of things. Well, we turn our attention now uh, to the Word. If you've got your outlines, I'll invite you to pull those out. As we continue in a series about learning to live with margin in your life. Tony Maniscalco is uh, always my source for um, humor and sports information. So he sends me the best forwards every week. I always look forward to the emails that I'm going to get from Tony because he always gives me the latest Alabama news and also the stuff that's going to make me smile. And he sent an anecdote this weekend about the Lone Ranger and Tonto. How many of you are old enough that you remember watching the Lone Ranger back in the day? Yeah, even the, the younger generation knows the Johnny Depp version of the Lone Ranger. So Tony gets the credit for this one. But uh, the, the story goes that the Lone Ranger and Tonto were on their way through the desert. They stopped to spend the night. They set up their tent. They, they went in and collapsed for the night, fell fast asleep. And several hours later, Tonto, in the middle of the night, woke up the Lone Ranger and uh, said, Look up toward the sky. What do you see? Kimosabi and the, the Lone Ranger said, well, Tonto, I see thousands of stars shining above us. And Tonto said, what does that mean to you, Kimosabi? And he said, well, it, it reminds me that in addition to those thousands of stars, there must be thousands of others that we can't see, and there are probably countless planets out there. And, and from a theological perspective, it reminds me of the greatness of God and how small we are. And from an astrological perspective, uh, it, it shows me that Saturn is now in the constellation Leo. From a meteorological perspective, it tells me that we're going to have a beautiful day tomorrow. And from a time standpoint, the position of the stars tells me that it's probably about three in the morning. But tell me, Tonto, what does this say to you? What does this mean to you? Tonto said, Kimosaba, you are dumb as buffalo. It tells me someone has stolen our tent. 
I tell you that silly little story for a reason. That is a picture of what we're going to talk about today. Two people in the same circumstance who see completely different things. One sees only the positive, and the other sees the stark, harsh reality. Somebody has stolen our tent. Today, what I'm going to be talking with you about is expecting the best while preparing for the worst. Proverbs 21:31 is a passage that probably no one walked in the door able to quote, and yet it is one of the great wisdom lines of the Old Testament. It says this, Do your best, prepare for the worst, then trust God to bring victory. That is a picture of a balanced life right there. Do your best, but prepare for the worst, all the while trusting God to bring the victory. Now, if you actually open your Bible to that verse and you read it in context, you would realize that Solomon is talking about preparing a war horse for battle. But none of us probably have ever gone into battle and had to prepare a war horse in advance. That's not something that we couldn't relate to. So let's translate this to 21st century terms that we can relate to and understand. We don't prepare, prepare horses for battle, but we do prepare vehicles for trips, don't we? We get ready to go on vacation. So I want you to think about when you're preparing to go on a vacation and the things that you're going to pack in your vehicle. You're preparing for the best. So you pack your swimsuits and your sunglasses. You, you pack your, your bikes and your hiking shoes because of all of the good things that you're going to have if the trip is the best that it can be. But if you're wise... You're also going to throw in the aloe for your sunburn, the bug spray for all the mosquitoes that are coming your way. You're going to pack the, the first aid kit and the medical bag and the jumper cables in case you break down. That's what wisdom really looks like. You go expecting and planning for the best, but if you're really wise, you also are going to be prepared for the worst. We're going to have a little fun today looking at what a balanced life really looks like. This is a very biblical way of living, expecting the best, planning for the worst. I want to say a word about each of those ideas. Expecting the best, that sounds like a generic term, but for a Christian, expecting the best, that's what the Bible refers to as faith. You realize that that's the core of faith in action, is us learning to expect the best from God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith makes us sure of what we hope for and gives us proof of what we cannot see. Christians should be always optimistic because we know that there is a loving God who is in control, who is all-powerful, who wants the best for us. And the result of that should be that we expect big things from God. Faith is not only the key that without it we can't be saved, but as saved people, faith is the key that unlocks the power of God to move in our circumstances so that miraculous things happen. And without that, we'll see very little supernatural stuff ever happen in our lives. How many of you believe that? That without faith, you'll see very little supernatural stuff. It's not that God is limited. It's not that goes, well, you know, Shane, if you don't believe, I, I'm, I'm just limited. I can't do much. No, it's not that God has to have Shane believing. God has just chosen to work things in such a way that we have to partner together. If we will believe... If we will expect for God-sized things, God says, oh, I'll do my part. You believe, you bring the faith, you bring the hope and the expectation, and I'll show up with the power. So absolutely, we should be people who expect the best. But the other side of that same coin is planning for the worst. 
how does the Bible talk about planning for the worst? Well, the Bible calls that wisdom. It's the recognition that life isn't always going to be easy. Life isn't always going to be about winning. It's not always going to be about living with abundance all the time in spite of what some preachers may have told you. Life isn't always just going to be more and more and more. There are going to be seasons of difficulty and want. And wisdom recognizes and plans for that. Now, the place where we get goofy in our theology is when we mix up heaven and earth and the experiences of the two. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be any more disappointment. There's not going to be any, any other seasons of need. Difficulty will be done away with. But we're not in heaven. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. That's what he said in John 16. And we're foolish if we don't recognize that. Wisdom recognizes that problems are coming. Proverbs 22, 3 says this, Wise people see trouble coming and get out of the way, but fools go straight to it and they suffer for it. Wisdom recognizes the potential of problems and it even looks ahead to, to see a lot of times far enough in advance that we get to miss the worst of it or at least be prepared for it so that we're just knocked flat when things don't really go our way. Have you ever noticed how optimists can be just run over by problems? We were so busy just trusting God for the perfect outcome that when things go badly that it's like, oh, the sky is falling now. Wisdom sees them coming. A wise person prepares for the worst, and the way that you do that, the biggest way that you prepare for the worst is by living with margin. All through this series, we've been saying margin is the gap between what you have, what you have available in terms of energy, money, resources, time, and what you're going to actually have to expend. It's creating space so that you've got room for the things that matter the most and room to actually enjoy the best things in life. Now, here's the really interesting thing to note about these two perspectives. Expecting the very best, planning for the very worst. Most of us land fully in one camp or the other. Most everybody in the room, probably, if we're honest, everybody in the room, everybody watching and listening online, you are mostly one or the other. You're an expector, expecting the best. You're an optimist. I'm an optimist. If you know me, you know I am completely on that side of the page. I am always trusting in a good outcome. I'm believing the best about you. I'm believing the best about what God is going to do in this situation. I believe the best. But half of us are planners. We're planning for the worst. We're making preparation for what could go wrong. And if we don't understand each other well, we'll drive each other crazy. I'm an expector. Jackie is a planner. We are a picture of the contrast of those two. Whatever the circumstance, I see the good outcome. Whatever's going on, Jackie is preparing for the worst version of this. And both of those are a healthy thing when they're held in balance together. One of the things that illustrates it so clearly every time it happens is when something gets lost in our house. The most recent thing, Jackie's already shaking her head. She knows where I'm going with this. The most recent thing that's been lost at our house is her passport. We realized a couple or three months ago that we could not find her passport. Hadn't really mattered in a while because who could travel in 2020? But she got to looking for it. And we have turned the house upside down. We've looked everywhere we know to look. Cannot find it. But from the outset... 
she's just, you know, Jackie's been saying, it's gone. It is just gone. And I'm like, baby, it's not gone. And we will find it. Don't worry about it. We're going to find it. And we've had this exchange over so many different things that have ever been lost over the years. I'll say, it's all right. It's going to be fine because we're going to find it. And she'll always look at me and say, you can't say that. How do you know we're going to find it? Well, I don't know it, but I believe it. I, believe, I expect that we're going to find it. This is going to have a good outcome. And she'll always just kind of shake her head and go on. Now, I'm thinking all the while, I'm saying a little silent prayer. Now, I can't tell you how many times in my life there's been something I cannot find. And I'll look, 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 and I cannot find it anywhere. And then I'll just finally remember to stop and pray and say, Lord, you know where this is. Will you show me where it is? Now, I can't tell you how many times I've done that. And within one, I mean, literally one to two minutes, be able to just go almost directly to it when I pause to pray. I don't bat a thousand on that, let me say. But it's happened a bunch of times. I thought with a passport, I'm like, I'm going to ask the Lord. He's going to take us right to it. Well, let me tell you, I started praying about that two or three months ago. We still hadn't found the sucker. Still have not found. Had the same thing happen a, a year or two ago. Jackie had a probably her most valuable set of earrings on. She was out in the yard, and a diamond earring apparently fell out sometime when she was out in the yard and lost it. She was just so heartbroken over that. Once again, what do I, what do I say? Don't worry about it, baby. We will find it. We're going to find it. I'm thinking, we're going to pray, and the Lord's going to take us right to it. Didn't happen. I even called Stone up. Said, I know Stone's a man with a metal detector. I'm like, Stone, come on. You, I bet you can find this thing. Me, Jesus, and Stone put together hadn't found that earring. It is lost. We had the same dialogue. You're never going to find it. Yes, we are. Expectors and planners wind up together. It's, it's crazy how much of the time God will put somebody who's the optimist with someone who is the... You know, we, the optimists want to call them pessimists, but, but we're going to call them... Re- <laughs> Jackie already answered. See, they put optimists with realists. There's nobody on earth who is a self-identified pessimist. So these are optimists and realists, the people who use wisdom to prepare for the worst. So which one are you? Which camp do you land in? And here's the thing. Regardless of which side of that you identify with, a biblical way of living is to be intentional to hold both in balance all the time. If I'm a, if I'm a realist, I can't really help the fact that I'm constantly thinking in terms of what's the worst outcome so I can be prepared for that. That's going to be a part of my thinking. I'm wired that way. But if I'm a realist, I've got to be intentional to always add God into the equation. But if God gets in the middle of this, what could the outcome be? So the realist is always reaching out to pull God and faith into this. And the, the optimist, the, the expector like me, is always having to surround themselves with people who are grounded in reality who are, are going to remind us, you know what, the stock market isn't always going to be up. You're not always going to make 15% a year on your return. You're not always going to enjoy nothing but good checkups at the doctor and the dentist. There are going to be times where things have a different outcome, and you better live prepared for that. So that's the question for the day. How do you hold on to both at once and really live with a biblical perspective on life? I'm going to share three principles with you. And don't get nervous because we're going to spend almost all of our time on the first one because in that we're going to unpack five specific ways that we live this out, that we apply this, and then I'm going to mention briefly two other principles at the end. So how do you do both of these things at once? The first 
principle of holding an expectation for the best in tension with a plan for the worst is that you must base your planning on God's wisdom. There is nothing you'll ever find in life that is more practical than this. The scriptures are as practical as it gets. Now, I understand that there are places in the scripture that are less relevant to us than other portions. Some people get offended at that thought. It doesn't mean that they're less the word of God. It's just reading a chapter of begets is not going to be nearly as practical for your life as reading from Proverbs. The scriptures are intensely practical about learning how to live with wisdom. And what we're going to find in scripture is that margin is a key part of God's wisdom for how we plan life. This is why, for instance, we plan for retirement. Because we expect there to be a season of life where we don't have as much energy and ability to go and produce, and yet we still plan to live for a bunch more years. So margin gives us the ability to to live well even during those seasons. It's, It's planning extra space in our lives because we believe that there are going to be times of difficulty and where we're going to run short. And there are five specific areas that the Scriptures counsel us that we're going to need margin for. I want you to think about these five. This is what we're going to camp on for a few minutes. You're going to need margin in terms of your money, your time, your health, your relationships, and your work. You don't have to write that down because we're fixing to, to march through all five of those things. Room to to run short in any of those and still have margin to deal with that. Too many of us who are the optimists, we just we make a plan as if everything's going to go perfectly, that the schedule's going to go just like we planned and the finances are going to fall in line just as we planned, and life doesn't work that way. So God's wisdom for margin in these five areas, I'm going to say just a, a line about each one of these from the Scriptures, and then we'll unpack that a little bit. When it comes to money, God's wisdom for your money If we had to sum it up in one line, this would be it. Invest your money. Invest your money. If I'm spending all that I make, the Scripture makes it clear I'm a foolish man. If I spend as much as I make, I'm living like a fool because there's no margin in that. Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. I'm always amazed at how much of the time, whatever I'm going to preach on Sunday, the Lord makes sure that in the week prior, I get to experience something where I have to live out the reality of what I'm going to talk about. That's painful sometimes. Sometimes it makes me want to preach on easier stuff. Well, this week, I got to experience this reality of needing margin when it comes to finances. We got to have the joy of replacing an air conditioning and heating unit, central heat and air on our house. Anybody had to do that lately? Yeah. (laughs) That's a lot of fun, isn't it, Carl? That'll set you back several thousand dollars. And it did for us. But here's the good news. We bought our house a little over two years ago. We knew when we bought the house that it was 12 years old. Air conditioning units in it, which is good because it lets you, you know, control. There's parts that we don't go into and that we can scale it way back. So that's a really good thing. But the bad news is there's three of them And we knew when we bought it, they were all installed when the house was built. So we were buying a house with three 12-year-old air conditioning units. All of you who've lived here for very long are shaking your heads going, ooh, that's bad. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're like, that means we're going to be buying air conditioning units and a lot of them in the next two or three years. So we just bought a new one. 
And I'm pretty sure that before 2021 is done, I'm going to be buying two more of those things this year. But here's the good news in that. Since the day we bought the house, we have been planning for the problem. So we created margin, and it didn't come as a surprise, and it didn't create a squeeze because we knew to be prepared for that setback. We couldn't know when it was coming, but it came. Stone had to come a-knocking at our door this week. But he took good care of us. Stone does heating and air conditioning, by the way. Did a great job with it. Wisdom teaches us to always save. That's why we talk around here about the 10-10-80 principle. The first 10% that you make, give to the Lord in your tithe. The second 10% that you make, pay yourself through your savings. And the other 80%, then you make a plan for what you're going to do with the rest of that. But here's the thing that I want to make sure that you don't miss today. I don't even have to ask the question, how many of you want to be on a firm foundation financially? Everybody wants that. Everybody wants financial security. That's universal. But if we ask the question, how do you get there? We, we think instinctively, well, the key to getting there is, is really two things. Produce more. I need more income coming in, right? And save more. I need to accumulate more. And we are... 100% across the board, we are instinctively convinced that those are the two keys to financial security. I mean, doesn't that make sense to you? Doesn't it? If I can make more, and if I save more, I'll be financially secure. And here's what I need for you to understand. Do not miss this. What you produce and what you save are at the very, very most only half of the equation, if even that much. Because the counsel of Scripture is that financial security is rooted in both saving and in giving. And we do not instinctively believe that. And because we don't, we seldom find true financial security. Hear what Jesus said about this. In Luke 6, 38, he said, Give, and you will what? And you will receive. You will be given much. The way you give to others is the way God will give to you. Do you hear the principle that Jesus is driving home? You're going to receive in line with the level of generosity and consistency of how you give. Would you agree that that's a picture of financial security? That God is ultimately the owner of everything. Can we agree on that? God is the maker of everything. God is the owner of everything. That the the economy of God is greater than anything else because it includes everything. And when you can tap into God's economy where he is the one who ultimately, not your job, not your boss, is your supplier. When that supplier says, Karen, I want you to have abundance. I want you to be taken care of. That's the most secure position that you can be in. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely it is. So how do you get in that position? Jesus said the biggest key is that you learn to give and you learn to give consistently. Here's the, if I could just make a simple picture out of it. Think of it this way. Imagine that I've got on a table up here two metal money boxes that are identical. The first box is my savings box and the second box is my giving box. Now we believe that our financial security, every one of us believe our financial security is going to be found in the first box. The more money I can squirrel away, the more money that I can invest, the more that I can get in the stock market, see that money growing, 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 saving, saving, saving. That's going to be my financial security. And we actually could go a step beyond that and say, well, the corollary to that is the giving box 
we better make sure that we don't go crazy with that. We better make sure that we use some restraint with that. In fact, the person who's planning for the worst instinctively is going to think, let's make sure we don't get too happy, too crazy with that giving box. Because if you give away too much, we're going to have a real shortfall. We're going to be in need. That's what human logic would tell you. Everybody nod your head like this if you agree that that's what logic would tell you. Of course it does. And what we must understand by faith is that God says that is not how it works. Yes, the wise man, the wise woman must do their part to make deposits in the saving box. But it is equally important, if not more so, that you are constantly being generous out of the giving box. Because from God's perspective, that is the one that assures you that you are tied into the supernatural pipeline that truly resources you with everything that you need. Because you see, to save without giving is as foolish as to earn without saving. I'm going to say that again because that needs to sink in. To be a person who saves regularly but doesn't give regularly is just as foolish as the person who would earn but never save. Because giving is what puts us on a secure footing. So what does that look like in real life? Well, I'll just use our lives as an example. Giving, and I'm so grateful because Jackie and I have only been married for less than six and a half years. I'm so glad that from the time we started dating and we, you, know, you start comparing what you, what's important to you and what you value. Man, I was thrilled to find out that she had a very similar background to mine when it comes to the matter of giving. Because I, I want to tell you, and everybody who's married in the room already knows this, if you don't line up on money matters, you're going to have problems. Because money will get in your way even when you do have very similar philosophies. I was thrilled to find out she was a committed giver, had been a tither for all of her adult life, and I was like, that is a relief because... You put somebody who is a giver with somebody who's tight, and you're going to have friction all the time. Some of you are living with that reality right now. So it has been a real natural thing for us to have a giving plan. And I'm going to say this not to in any way give us strokes, but I simply say this as a pattern of how one family does it. As a beginning point in our budget, the starting point for us is the tithe. We don't have to think about that. We don't have to pray about that. It is non-negotiable. The word tithe means a tenth. In the Scripture, It is a divine pattern that existed before the law was given. It was a part of the law, and it was endorsed after the law was already fulfilled. Jesus himself affirmed the tithe in the New Testament. That the first tenth is a divine portion that's a non-negotiable. It's brought into the place of worship as a way of saying, God, you gave me everything, and because of your goodness, I return the the first fruits of that to say thank you and to honor you. So that's a non-negotiable for us. That doesn't make us generous. That just means we, we have done the first thing that's a given as givers, that we tithe. And because we've been believers for a long time, we shouldn't still be operating with the training wheels on where all that we do is tithe. So the next thing that we have is our, our love offering, and that is an amount that we agree upon that we're going to give above our tithe to our church because we believe in our church and we want to honor the Lord with more than the minimum. So we have that that we don't have to pray about every week because we've agreed this is what we're going to do this year beyond that. And then for us personally, we believe in what's going on in Nigeria. We believe in reaching other people that we don't know. And so we've 
we make a commitment to that. Again, that becomes the easy thing. We get excited about being able to give to that. And then outside of those things, that's where we get to say, what do we feel like we would like to support? Things like Compassion International. That's been dear to my heart for almost 20 years. It's a joy to be able to be a part of ministries like that. I don't rob my tithe to support other ministries. That's a joy for us to get to do those kinds of things. We make sure that we build in margin for things like when you encounter someone who has a need. I'm not going to rob one place to help somebody in need. No, we build margin so that we can be generous with others or when we come into a scenario like the church has got a need that we can reach into that so that there is a margin to be generous. You know, this is the week that if you didn't already get it this weekend, this week you'll be getting your, your giving statement from the church to say this is what you gave in 2020. We just got ours uh, this weekend. And when I looked at it, I, I'm just being honest, I opened it up and I was a little surprised when I saw it. I, I had not kept up with the math of some you know extra things that had gone on. And I, I, the first thing I realized when I opened it was, was a pleasant surprise, that it was a figure different than what I had expected. And when I had time to reflect on it this weekend, I realized it was, it was more than we've been able to give before. But then as I reflected on it, God has blessed us more financially than in any other year in the past. And, and I just thought, what a cool thing. I, that number should be more in the coming year than it was this year. If I'm growing in generosity, I, if I'm growing as a believer, I should be growing in generosity. But it takes planning and intentionality to do this. It cannot be a matter of at the end of the day, at the end of the month, I'll see if I have anything left and then I'll try and give something out of that. Plan it from the top and let the other take care of itself. Make sense? I'm telling you, this is the key to financial security. Don't go somewhere crazy with what I just said. I'm not talking prosperity gospel. If you give, you'll be rich. That's not what I'm saying. You give, sometimes you're going to be going, wow, how are we going to make it this month? And other times you're going to have great abundance. You're going to experience both. But giving, according to Jesus, is a key to financial security. So how do you give? You create margin and give from that. The second area is, we said, invest your money. Secondly, spend your time on what matters most. Time seems to be where we struggle the most with the issue of margin. Have you, any of you ever heard of Hofstetler's Law? It's, it's an, an unusual statement. You probably, if you encountered it, wouldn't have remembered it. Uh, Douglas Hofstadter was a cognitive scientist who in 1979 spelled it out this way. He says, any task that you're planning to complete will always take longer than expected, like we needed some research scientists to be able to tell us that, right? But that's Hofstadter's law. That whatever it is that you have planned and you figured out how long it's going to take, it's going to take you longer than you think. Well, in addition to that, at about the same time, uh, the psychology team of Kahneman and Tversky uh, came up with a correlation statement. It is known as the planning fallacy in which they said, our past predictions of how long things, how long we think, <clears throat> thought things would take, they were overly optimistic. But we are now convinced that our current predictions are totally realistic. What they were saying is this. We come to a place of realizing, I've been wrong a thousand times before. So many things that I thought were going to take this long and they took this long. But now I've learned my lesson, and so whatever I'm planning right now, I'm always right about how long it's going to take. They call it the planning fallacy. You know what I say to all of that? 
seriously? It took us till 1979 to figure out that it takes longer to do things than we think it's going to take, which there has to be some kind of cosmic justice in that, that it took longer than it should have for us to figure out that it's going to take longer than we think it should to do things. Well, that was their primary concept. The point is this. Everything takes longer than we think that it should. Some of the great projects, like any of, anybody been to Boston and know what I'm talking about when I refer to the big dig in Boston? If you've been to Boston, you know what the, the, the big dig is. It took nine years longer than what they planned to dig all that tunnel work and the, and the lanes through that and all. If you've ever seen pictures of Sydney, Australia, we all have, you know the one thing you're always going to see, what's the most iconic image in Sydney? It's the beautiful opera house that you always see in the heart of Sydney. It took 10 extra years beyond what was planned to build the Sydney Opera House. The Second Avenue subway in New York, they started building that thing 100 years ago, and today they are still not finished with it. Everything takes longer than we think that it's going to take. Unfortunately, those of us who are optimists are convinced it's going to happen just like that we planned it's going to happen, and it's not. We need God's wisdom in managing our time. <clears throat> Ephesians 5.16 says this, These are evil times, so make every minute count. The Amplified Version says, Making the most of the time, buying up each opportunity, because the days are evil. The, the term there, one of the translations says, redeeming the time. It, it is literally, you know, when you redeem something, when you buy something, there's always an exchange. If I buy something from you, we're going to make an exchange. If I go over to Wayne and I make a purchase from Wayne, I'm going to exchange my money for something of value that he's going to give to me. What Paul is saying is think of your time that way. Don't think of, of your time and of your day as a series of tasks that have to be done. Think of it as a series of opportunities that you get to purchase. And you have to be selective in which ones you're going to purchase. As I was reflecting and meditating on that, just that one verse about redeeming the time, you know, spend your time on the, the wisest choices, I had a flashback to some of my earliest memories as a small child. I grew up in a small town in southeast Alabama called Brundage, very, very small town. It was kind of like growing up in Mayberry. My mom was a school teacher. She taught um, high school math in Ozark. And my dad, when I was three years old, he opened a little mom-and-pop drugstore, Price Pharmacy, on Main Street in Brundage. They took an old seed-and-feed warehouse and turned it into a pharmacy. And so my earliest memories are of growing up in the pharmacy. I mean, literally growing up in the pharmacy because with mom working in Ozark all day every day and dad working at the pharmacy, we couldn't afford daycare. So the pharmacy was my daycare. So literally from 7.30 in the morning until about 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon, five days a week, I was at the drugstore with my dad, and he was busy, and so I just hung out at the drugstore. And there was some good and bad with that. But let me tell you what the really good was if you grew up in a drugstore at three, four, five, and six years old. The whole counter in front of the cash register was lined with candy bars, boxes and boxes, paydays, Snickers, Hershey's, babies, all of that lined up there. And I can still to this day remember as a three-year-old thinking I had died and gone to heaven that every day I get to go with dad to the store. And so I would wear him out. Dad, can I have a zero bar? Dad, can I have a Snickers? Can I have a baby Ruth? So my dad was a wise man. He didn't have time to wrestle with me over that every day. So I still remember that young dad looking at me and saying, we're not going to do this every day. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you an allowance, a daily allowance, and you're going to have to decide what you get with it. You don't have to come and ask me. You get three dimes every day. This will date my age a little bit. In those days, a candy bar was a dime, 
and he had a Coke machine at the front of the store. And Cokes were 20 cents. And the dad was smart with that. That's enough to get you a candy bar and a Fanta grape drink. 30 cents would do that. I still remember the first day he gave me three dimes. I mean, I felt like I had hit the jackpot. I had 30 cents that I was accountable to nobody with. I still remember what I did. Man, I took off around to the front of the cash register. I grabbed up three Hershey bars, and I went back to the cash register, hit the no-sale button, put in my three dimes, and I went to the back to eat my three Hershey bars. That was great in that moment. But I'll tell you what, as that day wore on, you know what began to dawn on me? Three Hershey bars without a fan of grape drink gets pretty dry after a little while. It's a long time till 5 o'clock with no Fanta grape drink. The lesson that I had to learn as a 3- and a 4-year-old is when you're going to get the same amount every day, you better think about how you spend those dimes when you only get three dimes a day because it's a, it's a long time till Mom comes home at 5, at 5 o'clock. You better figure out what you're going to get when you trade that dime in. Now, I tell you that silly little childish example because it is a, an oversimplified version of what you get every day of your life. We love to, to imagine that we get to have more time than, than somebody else, that we can pack more in the day than somebody else. But the thing about time is it is not like money. You can stockpile money. You can't stockpile your time. And you got the same thing that I got for Saturday, for Sunday, for Monday. You get 1,440 minutes. And if you're using your time well, it's a given. You're going to have to spend about 500 of those minutes sleeping. You may tell yourself that you don't need that, but you do. Most of us do. So then you're left with about 900 to 950 minutes that you're awake, and you have to figure out what are you going to trade those for? What are you going to swap those for? Which opportunities are going to be the best opportunities to, to trade those minutes in for? Because just like my three dimes as a kid, I didn't get more. Dad never came back and said, well, here's three more. It's going to be a long day. Nope, you just got three. You're going to get 1440. And of those, there's going to be about 900 that are usable with daylight. We have to be thoughtful about what are the things that matter the most that we want to swap for that really are going to be worthwhile. Now, we like to think of our schedule as, and our lives as being like a car. With a car, you can overload it. And we get it. My car may be overloaded. It may be riding low in the back. The gas mileage may be plummeting. I may go a little slower, burn a little more gas. But if I overload my car, I'll still get where I was going. But here's what you have to understand. Your life isn't like a car. Your life is like an airplane. You can overload a car and get where you're going, but you can't overload an airplane and get there. You overload an airplane and it'll crash. Some of us still remember and enjoy the music of Keith Green. Remember who that was? Christian musician. He's no longer with us. He passed away in the 70s. You know why he's no longer with us? Because he packed 12 people in an airplane that was made for seven. And they crashed and died. You overload an airplane, it's going to crash. You overload your schedule, you're going to crash. You can't pack but so much into the time that you've been given. So we have to figure out what matters the most. Ask God to help you choose wisely and prioritize. And let me suggest you to you just some beginning points. When you start planning what you're going to trade out for, start with rest and figure out what am I going to have to back up and change so that I can get in bed at a time so that all the other things that I'm planning for tomorrow, that I am rested when I start those, begin with rest. 
It's not a bad idea as one of the first things that you budget for to begin the next day to take five minutes to plan the day, to take a little bit of time for some quiet time alone with you and God, to take a little bit of time to do something to exercise your body and to take care of you, if that's some meditation time, some exercise time to take care of you, and to build in a plan for some time for relationships that are going to refill your tank. Plan the things that matter the most. Thirdly, take care of your body. I'm going to move through these last three quickly. God cares about your body, so you've got to choose to take care of it and care for it too. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. When you trusted Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, when you trusted Jesus, he said, I'm coming to just take up residence in you. I don't live in buildings. I live in people. So your body is my temple. And I honor that temple with my presence. I want you to honor my presence by how you take care of the temple. So we need to be asking ourselves the question, okay, if my body is God's temple, how should I maintain it? And that goes back to thinking through the fundamental things of rest and exercise and what I take into it, what I choose not to take into it, and making sure that I built in downtime to recharge it. The fourth area that I'll, I'll just touch on is in the area of work. From the very fall, from the very beginning in the fall, we were told that we would be frustrated in our work, that there would be frustrating aspects to our work. But God's wisdom from his word is that diligence and perspective are the key to to not being burned out by work. You know, the thing that seems to be a recurring theme as we listen to the younger generation come of age is a real struggle with connecting with work. Have you noticed this? you notice that the younger generation is really perplexed by the issue of not feeling passionate about their work? They feel like they haven't really found the, the work that they were made for. Anybody besides me notice that, that that's a real common theme and, and a lot of desire to kind of move around because they're just not passionate about my work? The cynical part of me wants to go, no kidding, that's why they pay you to show up because we weren't all born just passionate about going to work every day, so they have to pay us to be there, but... Diligence is the key. Proverbs 6, 6 to 8 says this, You lazy people, you should watch what the ants do and learn from them. Ants have no ruler, no boss, and no leader. But in the summer, ants gather all of their food and they save it. So when the winter comes, there is plenty to eat. Ants are God's reminder of the power of persistence, of the power of not giving up. Did you know that some varieties of ants will live 14 to 15 years? I love it that Solomon was the wisest person who's ever, ever lived in the history of the world. And he would take such simple things as ants and say, you can learn a lesson if you just watch these little guys. They'll live as long as your dog or your cat. And look at how they do what they do. I mean, ants really are kind of entertaining and almost comical when you think about it. I mean, we hate, we all in the South, we hate fire ants. I hate fire ants. They all build their mounds in the yard and you're always trying to get rid of them and you can't. But it's just, it's kind of comical when you think about it. Go out and kick over an ant hill and watch what happens. You already know without having to do the experiment. Every ant in the mound seems to go, ah, ah, for about five seconds and they're all running in every direction. And then what do they do in just a matter of seconds? They get busy building it back. And you give them a day, and that, that mound's right back like it was before. Or they moved it five feet down the way, and they built one just as big and just as pretty. They'll do that month after month, 
year after year for a bunch of years. And they just keep on. And you look at them and think, that joker is so little he can't carry but one grain of sand at a time. And yet, in the span of a night, they'll build a pretty big mound. Solomon said, watch those guys. They don't have a master. They don't have a boss. But they show us what persistence and diligence will do. You may not feel enthused about what you're doing, but if you'll work at it, if you'll stick with it, it'll be amazing what it'll produce and how much margin it'll create in your life if you'll stick with something. Some of us feel like, yeah, but the problem is I've got a terrible boss. I can't stand working for my boss. What you may need is not a change in job, but a change in bosses. And that doesn't mean you need to knock off your boss. It means you need to change your thinking about who your boss is. Paul said in Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as though you were working for the Lord and not for people. To realize, I may be doing something that seems really small, but I can honor God in how I do this. I'm serving God by doing what I do with diligence and excellence. And then the fifth and final thing that I'll just mention, because we're going to talk more about this in three weeks, but it is relationships that we that we really value and invest in relationships and love relationships. On uh, Three weeks from today is Valentine's Day, and on that day as we wrap up this series on margin, we're going to talk about We're talking about prioritizing the things that matter most, and relationships are what matters most, so we're going to land on that at the end. But Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself valuing love relationships. Paul said in Colossians 3.14, love is more important than anything else. It is what ties everything completely together. I said this before, but you just always have to be mindful of it. When you start skimming on your time so that you can whatever. For most of us, it's so that we can do more work or make more money. And when we start skimming on our time instead of being wise in managing our time, the place we will always cheat first is the ones we love the most. We'll cheat on our time alone with God. We'll cheat on our time alone with our spouse or with our kids or with the people that we really value. We'll, we'll cheat against you know, time spent with Christian friends in worship or in small groups. So being intentional, if I value relationships, I'm going to budget time to be alone with God. I'm going to budget time on Sundays to be with you in worship. I'm going to budget time to always be with my small group, to be with my wife, to be with friends, budgeting my time around relationships. Now, I get it. That's five big, major areas of life. You can't go home and tackle those five. So what I would ask you to do is to reflect on those and to just go before the Lord and say, Lord, which of these things do I really need to focus in on? Is it about how I'm handling money or how I'm handling time or relationships or my body or my work? Where do I need to give attention and how do I need to adjust that? Two final things and we're done. The, the second overall principle, if I'm going to live with a balance, of expecting the best from God, but planning for the worst. Part of what I have to carry all the time is a fundamental trust that God is in control. If I have financial problems, if I have relationship major problems, health issues that come up, those things are going to happen somewhere along the way. And if I'm going to hold on to faith and wisdom, I have to trust God's in control here. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that great passage that says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all that you do, and he will show you which path to take. Now, that passage may not feel really comforting to read it. Because for some of us, we're going, what does that look like? What does it really mean to trust God with all of your heart? Whatever the circumstances are, whatever's going on, how, how do I... 
trust God? What does he expect me to do? And understanding the answer to that, maybe it helps to consider what we usually do when things go wrong. Let me speak for a moment to the men in the room, the men who are watching online. When something goes really wrong, there's a, there's a major hiccup that's going to be a, a huge financial problem or something that causes a crisis. Guys, what do you do in that moment? I would love it if we all could say, oh, I get on my knees and I begin to call out to God and I begin to really tune in and listen to what he's going to say. But I don't think there's probably three of us in the room that can say that. I, I wish that was my answer. It's not. If I'm really honest in that moment of crisis, you know what I do? Instinctively, whether I mean to or not, I instantly try and take control. I take charge and I begin to manage the situation. I begin to work to fix it. I'm a fixer. And as men, we particularly are, take the bull by the horns, fix the problem. And so many times what I do is I fail to trust God and I miss what God wanted to say or do in that circumstance. If I'm honest with you, it feels good to me to be in control. There, there's like some broken thing in me that actually sort of enjoys that about a crisis that I have an opportunity to take control and save the day. Can anybody else relate to that at all? You don't even have to raise your hands. Surely somebody else can. But it sort of feels good to get in there and fix it. But you know what I've learned over time? I'm 52 years old. I think it's taken most of those 52 years to even begin to grasp this. Is The biggest stuff, the biggest challenges and problems that I rush in there to try and fix, I usually don't fix at all. And when I look back on it, some of the biggest ones I've tried to tackle, I think I've only made them worse. Instead of trusting God with it, I got in there to manage it myself. Like the biggest one that just screams at me from my memory is, I think about my youngest daughter. I love her to death. Some of you can relate to this. Her teenage years were for me, bliss is not the word that comes to mind. Hellish comes to mind as I think about her teenage years as a parent. I, they were miserable. She was the easiest child to raise from birth. Well, those first few months she was colicky. But outside of those first few months, up until she was 14, she was a joy to raise and at 14 hormones took her brain hostage as happens with a lot of teenagers and for the remainder of her teenage years boys were just an awful part of our experience i still remember all too vividly when she was 14 or 15 i guess she was 14 at the time she was in youth group at our church and there was a boy who had started coming to youth group he was just bad news. Every dad in the room knows what I'm talking about. He is just that guy. That guy that you just think, some people just need killing. You know, you ever just felt that way about a boy? I'm kidding. But, you know, just bad news. He had announced to some of the other kids around him when he started coming to youth group. He came from a rough background. I, I hate that. But he announced that the reason he was there was he was going to have sex with a girl from every different school represented in the youth group. That's why he was coming to youth group. So he could have sex with a girl from every school. And he set his sights on my daughter. I remember vividly the night that the youth pastor called me in the middle of a youth activity and said, he is here and your daughter is here. And, oh, they are all over each other. It is ridiculous. What do you want me to do? I said, I don't want you to do anything. Give me five minutes. I jumped in my car and drove as fast as I could to get to the church. 
And I'm not real proud of what I'm fixing to describe because I wasn't feeling pastoral at all in that moment. I did not come in to shake hands with anybody or greet anyone. I went, focused like a laser beam, straight to this boy and grabbed him by the back of the neck and drug him out the back door of the building and hauled him a couple of buildings back, took him around out of sight of everyone, and I pinned him to the wall, and I gave him a word of pastoral counsel. I did my best to take control of the situation. The long and short, the nice version is, I told him that I knew why he was there, and he better never come near my daughter ever again. And thankfully in that moment, he was wise enough that he just gave a lot of yes sirs and we were done with that conversation. That began for me a series of what would be a years-long struggle to take control of something that was beyond my control. And with every attempt that I made to insert myself into the situation and get it under control and manage it, it only got worse and worse. I share that just confessionally to say to you, a part of this whole thing of learning to live a life of faith and wisdom, expecting the best from God, but understanding and planning for something that's far from the best also happening along the way, means that there are going to have to be times where things are not going the way that we want, and we're not going to be able to fix it by jumping in and grabbing it by the neck and saying, here's how it's going to happen. This is what's going to go down. And we're not going to, by our will, fix it. We're going to have to learn to trust that there is a loving God who is bigger than us who can, over time, do more than what we could ever hope to do with that situation. It's what Lamentations 3 is talking about when it says, The Lord is good to everyone who trusts in Him. So it is best to wait in patience, to wait for Him to save us. It's worth remembering this. There is only one thing in all the Bible that you're ever told to control. And that is yourself. There's only one thing you have the power to control. And that is yourself. The Scripture says that the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit of God living in you, is going to be self-control. All the other stuff that we think we need to control, we aren't even called to. The third and final principle that I'll just mention is this. Living with this balance means that we must believe that God is working for our best. God isn't out to get you. God is out to give you His very best. He's already proven his love on the cross, and that is evidence of how much more he is willing to do to meet your needs, to care for you, to care for your family. Romans 8, 32, Paul says, God did not keep back his own son, but gave him for us. If God did this, won't he freely give us everything else? The point here is this. Many of us live as though, well, I was such a wretched sinner, and God went so far as to send his son to die for me and to save me. So, I mean, if he's already done all that, it really wouldn't be right for me to ask him to do much more or expect him to do much more. And Paul's going, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's the opposite of that. If God was willing to give his son to save you, he was willing to give the greatest for your salvation. Won't he give you everything else that you could ever need in life? So don't be afraid to ask him and rest in the fact that he's committed to bringing the best to you, even when you're in the most difficult circumstance. Jesus said in Matthew seven eleven. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? 
He's just he's painting a picture. God is your father. Fathers on earth know how to give good gifts to their kids. The father in heaven gives so much better. And he doesn't give it to you because you're good. He gives it to you because he is good. So rest in that. That God is committed to making sure he delivers his best for you. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer right now? God, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for how you provide for us. Thank you that we really can come to you with expectant and hopeful hearts, trusting that you're going to pour out good things on us. Thank you that you respond when we pray. I pray, God, that you would strengthen our faith. For some of us who have lived so bound up with fear of the future and expecting the worst, that you would help us to stretch beyond that. If today you realize that's really where you struggle, why don't you ask God today, Lord, increase my faith. Help me to stop focusing only on the negative, but help me to have a heart that's expectant, that actually believes that when I call out to you, that you answer. God, as a gift, would you give us a gift of faith today? For some of us who more naturally come with just optimism and expectant hearts, and yet we've gotten tripped up at times because we don't have our feet grounded in, sometimes just in reality and wisdom, I pray that you would help us to sink our feet deeply into the truth of your word and to the wise counsel of people that you put around us. Lord, we want to be open to all that you're saying and doing. We want to be faithful with the time and opportunities and resources that you give us. Please help us to be men and women whose lives are truly characterized by love, faith, and wisdom. Thank you for how you're working. We open ourselves up to you and pray, Jesus, have your way in us more and more every day. We thank you for using us, and we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I surely hope that what you heard was relevant and helpful and above everything. I hope that what you experienced today really helped your heart to connect with the heart of God. Now, if what you heard uh, for you stirred up any questions or maybe led you toward uh, some type of spiritual decision, maybe you want to talk with someone about something that's on your mind, I would love to hear from you. And so I would encourage you, reach out by email. At the bottom of the screen, you see my email address. It's mark at myfreedomchurch.net. That's not going to go to a secretary or an assistant. That will come directly to me. I'd love to hear from you and talk with you about anything that's on your mind. And if in the future you're in our area, we would love for you to come and worship with us at Freedom Church. But until then, we invite you to access all of the sermon material that you find online. Again, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Hope that you have a great day.